Chapter 9, God's Recipe, One Flesh. Did you ever play with Play-Doh as a kid? Or like me, do you play with it as an adult because you have small children? There is one cardinal sin regarding Play-Doh that every parent has ingrained in their child's mind. Never mix the colors. Well, mixing colors might actually be the second or third cardinal sin behind eating it and failing to put it back into its airtight container, but I digress. The reason we don't want our kids mixing Play-Doh colors is simple. Once you mix them together, you can never pull them back apart. The Bible tells us in Genesis 2.24 that this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Bringing two separate people together to become one flesh is like mixing a yellow piece of Play-Doh and a blue piece of Play-Doh together. As you mix them, the blue and the yellow cease to be, and they create an entirely new color, green. There is no way to separate the yellow from the blue, or even to find the yellow and blue. The two have truly become one in all facets. The glaring problem with the Corinthian, quote, anything goes mindset that is so prevalent today is one we know from experience. Sex involves much more than just our physical selves. This is because God's design for sex is all about intimacy. Sex is meant to be just one aspect of the union of two people physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Anyone who has ever been used or dumped or who can't shake the memories associated with previous partners can testify to this. God's design for sex is for it to occur within an unbreakable bond between two people who are becoming one. It is an act of supreme transparency and vulnerability in which two people embrace each other's full humanity in an act of trust and faithfulness. The New Testament often uses the metaphor of a bride and a groom to describe the relationship Jesus has with us. The intimacy God wants us to have with him is like the intimacy he designed us to have with one wife. No idols, no lust, just pure love, pure devotion, pure relationship. In the Old Testament, we see the same sexual marriage metaphor, but usually it's depicted through the Israelites' tendency to cheat on God. God instructs the prophet Hosea to marry an active prostitute to show the people what it feels like for God to be faithfully, quote, married or covenanted to them. The book of Jeremiah begins by reminiscing about when God and Israel were like a newlywed couple in love with each other in a faithful marriage. The rest of the book is essentially the tale of Israel's lewd prostitution and affairs with idols. Israel is called a swift she-camel and a wild donkey in heat, sniffing the wind in sexual craving. She's called a prostitute with many lovers, and worse than this, a prostitute's brazen face, refusing to blush with shame about her unfaithfulness, but only continuing in it. God directly associates the people's idol worship with adulterous sex, and he directly identifies himself as their husband, longing for his bride to return to him. Why does God relate sex to a relationship with him? Because sex is the deepest expression of intimacy 
in a relationship. It is the model of what faithful, committed, lifelong intimacy and love are supposed to look like. It's not simply one body entering another. It is the melding of two unique people full of hopes, dreams, goals, fears, likes, dislikes, insecurities, vulnerabilities, needs, personalities, family roles, responsibilities, faults, strengths, weaknesses, imperfections, and quirks. It's one person saying to another, I will accept you and support you as a complete human being. You can trust me with everything that makes you fully human. Footnote. An interesting side note to think about. Before birth control was invented, sex would have always been connected with the responsibility of having children. When God designed sex, he tied it directly to the responsibility of parenthood, a permanent, committed, cooperative partnership of trust and fidelity. This tie seamlessly attaches sex to sharing your life with someone for the rest of your life. Think about how different this is from our views of sex today and all the collateral damage we see and experience as a result. End of footnote. This is called love. In 1 Corinthians 6, 15-16, Paul goes back to Genesis 2.24's Plato mixing to prove his point. Quote, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Unquote. Paul argues that becoming one flesh is much more than a simple physical interplay. It is two people pouring their hearts and souls into each other, seeing one another the way God intended them to, as valuable, dignified, precious human beings created in God's image. It is saying to someone, I accept 100% of you, and I will be here for you through anything. Nobody would argue that this is what happens when someone is having sex with a prostitute. Yet Paul is saying that when you have sex with anyone, you have just united yourself with them as one flesh. If you have sex with a prostitute, you'd better marry her. Or more accurately, in a theological sense, you just got married to her. Of course, no one is making this sort of commitment when they have sex with a prostitute or with the person they just found on Match.com. And this lack of commitment helps explain the massive amount of relational heartache we see in the world. Like having a baby and leaving it to die, we are creating any number of one fleshes, a mathematical fallacy, without treating them in accordance with what they are. You can't ditch a one flesh relationship and not have a major fallout. Understanding this dynamic sheds light on Jesus' commands about lust in Matthew 5, 27 to 28. Jesus tells us, quote, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Unquote. When we lust over someone, we are definitely not accepting and supporting 100% of them, nor have we committed to be there for them in any way whatsoever. Just as you create a one flesh relationship when you have sex with a prostitute, a Match.com hookup, or your longtime girlfriend, Jesus is saying you create a one flesh relationship with every woman or image of a woman you lust over. Talk about breaking God's design for sex. 
We haven't just broken it, we have completely obliterated it. For the sake of illustration, let's say lusting over someone is the equivalent of accepting 10% of who they are. Jesus and Paul are saying that when we lust, when we accept only this 10%, we are still creating a 100% one flesh bond. They are saying that when we lust, even if we try to keep some of the yellow Play-Doh off to the side, while only a portion mixes in with the blue, in truth, everything becomes intertwined. So what happens to the other 90% of the other person? Or the other 90% of our own self, for that matter? It's neglected, abused, and starved to death as we move from fix to fix to fix, hoping that a whole bunch of 10% will eventually add up to 100. When we try to do our math by our rules, rather than sticking with God's design, it's no wonder we end up with a mess on our hands. Proverbs 6.27 sums this truth up well. Quote, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Unquote. It is a lie and an illusion to think we can follow any design for sex other than God's, as individuals and as a culture, without getting burned. You can't make one flesh by adding together 10 different fragments of flesh, just as you can't scoop fire into your lap without being burned. None of us have followed God's design for sex perfectly. Staring at our failure or being weighed down with shame is not the point of bringing his design to light. The point is to see with crystal clarity the contrast between God's creation of sex and the type of fruit it produces in comparison with Satan's version and the world's view of sex. We study the instruction manual for the car so that from this day forward, we can commit to doing what it says and we can see any other alternative for the folly it is. Pour some sugar on me. Our culture tells us you can isolate sex from the rest of the one flesh relationship without consequence. Quote, I can have sex, or lust, porn, etc., now and marriage later, unquote, is a common way of thinking, as is the thought that we can be married and have a little extracurricular lust on the side without a problem. Def Leppard's 1987 rock anthem, Pour Some Sugar on Me, provides a good metaphor for what our culture has done with sex. The song is about the singer having sex with a woman, and he equates the experience to her pouring sugar on him. She is sugar, and he eats her up. Which sounds a lot like a statement from the first century Corinthians, quote, food for the stomach, and the stomach for food, unquote. Sugar is good, so eat it. Sex is good, so have it. Eating sugar and having sex have become synonyms. Have you ever eaten sugar by itself? I mean lots of sugar. Once when preaching a sermon on sexual purity, I asked the audience to raise their hand if they like sugar, Hands shot up all over the room. Sugar's great. We love candy, cake, brownies, chocolate, ice cream, pie, and hundreds of other delicious foods made possible by sugar. Since our church audience confessed to liking sugar so much, I asked for a volunteer to come on stage and eat some sugar in front of everyone. I then brought out a 22-ounce container of sugar I'd pulled from our coffee bar, a large cylinder with a poor spout and offered $20 to anyone who could eat the entire thing. The only hands that shot up this time 
belong to middle school boys. I decided to pick the one who had already jumped to his feet exclaiming, quote, oh, this will be easy, unquote. He came on stage and took the sugar container with confidence and began to pour it into his mouth. It didn't take long for a mound of sugar to begin building on his tongue and eventually the inevitable happened. Sugar sprayed from his mouth all over the stage. I used this same object lesson with a group of college students. And what do you know, a college freshman, a guy of course, was determined to defeat my challenge. Full of determination, he sat there chomping down mouthfuls of sugar for the final 15 minutes of my talk. He had ingested just under half the container and I had to wrap up. So I gave him the money and mercifully told him to stop. I found out later he ended up with chronic headaches that he had to seek medical attention for. And yes, that was the last time I've ever actually given that challenge in a sermon. The thing about sugar is that, as wonderful as it is, it is not meant to be eaten on its own. Whether it's in coffee, peanut brittle, or cake, sugar is meant to be included in a recipe with other ingredients and flavors. Why can't you eat sugar by itself? Sugar is great, but by its very design and function, it's meant to be united and balanced with other ingredients. It is too potent on its own and needs to bond with the other ingredients to be palatable. What are the other ingredients needed in a relationship to bond with the potency and power of sex? Trust, faithfulness, commitment, vulnerability, patience, perseverance, selflessness, love, commitment. Did I already say that one? Commitment. Without these buttresses in place, sex by itself will break hearts and crush hopes. Where is the only place to find these buttresses in a format that guarantees they aren't going anywhere? Marriage. Let's say a cake represents a healthy marriage and sugar represents sex, as Def Leppard sings so eloquently. What Def Leppard and the rest of our culture do, and have conditioned us to do, is to eat a piece of cake and say, quote, wow, this cake is great. What makes it taste so good? Unquote. We are told it's the sugar. We then decide that if sugar is where the good taste comes from, then why bother with the rest of the ingredients at all? If sugar is where it's at, let's just eat sugar and skip the boring, inconvenient, difficult, bland, and time-consuming ingredients like flour, butter, yeast, and eggs. If we can get the pleasure of sex without taking on the responsibilities and inconvenience of marriage, then count us in. This is a pretty easy sell, as there's no denying that sugar is good. When it can be packaged in so many quick, easy, bite-sized portions, it's no surprise so many of us are hooked on it. Meant for more. The problem with pornography, lust, and casual sex is that they condition us to treat women not as human beings, but as body parts and superficial flirtation partners. It's much easier to skip the vulnerabilities, personalities, imperfections and quirks, and go straight to the animalistic pleasure of body parts and winning another conquest. Some men's entire lives revolve around eating and casual sex. Footnote, if they pursue making money or gaining power, it is often only because money and power make it easier 
to get casual sex. End footnote. What is the difference between this existence and a stray dog's? Are we not meant for more than this? Remember the phrase, quote, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, from 1 Corinthians 6.13. The message the Corinthians had bought into was that, just as the stomach is meant for food, the body is meant for sex. So partake accordingly. Paul's response is, quote, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body, unquote. Paul essentially steps in and says, quote, No, you don't understand. Your body is meant for so much more than sexual immorality, unquote. This is like saying, quote, Sugar is meant for so much more than to be eaten alone, unquote. Sex is a crucial component of something much greater than itself, marriage. And if marriage is a physical metaphor, of the spiritual reality of our relationship with Jesus, then our body is meant for higher purposes than becoming enslaved to sexual immorality, selfishness, and people consumption. Verses 19 to 20 of 1 Corinthians 6 put an emphatic exclamation point on this by declaring, quote, You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body, unquote. Jesus bought your body out of slavery, and the price was his shed blood on the cross. He bought you for a purpose much greater than being a slave to sex, and he yearns for you not to go back to that cheapened existence. 1 Corinthians 6 emphasizes some very important truths. Sex is good, it is God's, and it is essential. It's also meant to be an ingredient in a much bigger recipe, a recipe of trust, commitment, faithfulness, selflessness, and intimacy, in which one person supports the full humanity of another. When sex or lust happen apart from the rest of the ingredients of marriage, there is nothing of substance to support it. Its weight and potency cause it to plummet to the ground, shattering into pieces and harming everyone who comes into contact with it. When I lust after a woman, I do not take into account her hopes, dreams, insecurities, and vulnerability, and I am in no position to support these things. Only a husband is in position to support these things, and I am definitely not her husband. I'm only taking into account her body parts and how I can consume them. I care nothing about the rest of who she is or my inability to support her full humanity. In fact, I have taken away her humanity. I have degraded her. At the same time, my wife is fully human, with hopes, dreams, insecurities, vulnerabilities, etc. And I've made a commitment to her that allows her to trust me with her full humanity and all her imperfections. When I lust at the girl working at the coffee shop, I break that trust by spilling my marriage's intimacy. As Proverbs 5, 15-17 states, Quote, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Our streams of marital intimacy are not meant to spill over into the public square. I've just given the barista something intimate, something meant only for my wife. 
and I've also taken something intimate from her. Yes, I am designed to be attracted to the body of a woman, but it's meant to be attached to all the other aspects of our one flesh relationship, so that the other ingredients of the relationship can support and shape this experience. When I enjoy this attraction at the coffee shop counter, it is tarnishing both the barista by degrading her and my marriage by enjoying something meant to be enjoyed with my spouse. Now, when I go to be sexually intimate with my wife, I am bringing in another flesh, a flesh I cannot support and a flesh that pollutes the trust we have established. This is the trust that allows my wife to open herself up to me in vulnerability. It is the trust and faithfulness needed to make a marriage healthy, strong, and sexually thriving. Sexual experience outside of marriage brings brokenness because the ingredients of trust and commitment needed to complete the marital recipe aren't there to support it. Have you ever done a trust fall as part of a team building exercise? One person stands on the edge of a picnic table or similar platform and the rest of the team gets behind them at ground level. Team members make two parallel lines facing one another with their arms extended, each arm alternating with the team member's arm across from them, forming a zipper of arms. The person standing on the tabletop has their back to the team. When signaled by the team, this person tips backwards with their back toward the earth. The sensation of falling is a rush. The reason this exercise is called a trust fall is obvious. The person falling trusts their team to safely catch them. Without the team's focused commitment to catching the person, the fall could be disastrous. If the teammates get distracted by their smartphones or by some squirrels racing by, the results could be deadly. One person must trust and the others must commit to a laser-like focus on guarding and honoring that trust. In the same way, sex is meant to take place only within a trust relationship, when one partner is firmly committed to supporting the other. Would you ever do a trust fall with people you weren't sure would care enough to catch you? Certainly not. And if someone is falling into your arms, are you the type of person who cares enough to keep them safe? I hope so. The potency of sex, with all its rush and thrill, needs this type of support or it will produce disastrous results in the long run. What damage has been inflicted on you by falling into the wrong sets of arms? What damage have you inflicted? Meanwhile, your wife is falling, trusting you to catch her and keep her safe. Will you? Bland Bread God's recipe for sex provides a great reminder to us of the truth we began our chapter with. God created sex, and he created it to be very good. Sex is God's, not Satan's. What is the purpose behind a car? Why does its creator make it run on gas and oil and design thousands of moving parts to work efficiently together? The car's creator does this so it can take you places and not only take you there, but take you safely and enjoyably. God didn't randomly create sex and then add a bunch of rules to make it as difficult as possible for us to enjoy. He created it with great intentionality. And the part of that intentionality we so often overlook is that sex is about much more than what happens between the sheets. God honoring sex produces strong, incredible families. 
which produce incredible societies and incredible legacies. God-honoring sex upholds all humans with dignity and love, rather than relegating humans to be objects that are consumed and discarded. God-honoring sex shapes our hearts to love the way Christ loves us. God-honoring sex teaches us what real love is. God-honoring sex models to our children how they are to view people. God-honoring sex produces lives of substance, character, and integrity. God-honoring sex produces people and a better world, period. It produces a life free from the emptiness and destruction of betrayal that Proverbs 5 speaks so passionately against. The purposes and benefits of God-honoring sex are limitless, but they are all the benefits of an apple orchard, of careful planning and preparing, of sweat equity and self-discipline, of hard work and diligence, of the long term, not the short term, of endurance and perseverance, not selfishness, of the big picture and the final harvest, not instant gratification. These benefits come from reading through the entire recipe. We go to the store to purchase all the separate ingredients, most of them quite bland on their own. We wait for an oven to preheat, then get our hands and clothes dirty, mixing everything we need. We let a bunch of ingredients all work together as one, then go through the 400-degree fire for a long period of time. Finally, we even have to wait for the final product to cool down. But it's worth it, isn't it? The old man in Proverbs 5 certainly seems to think so. The beauty of God's recipe for sex is it provides the perfect place for sugar. Imagine if you made a cake without the sugar. A marriage without God-honoring sex is not a delicious cake. It's bland bread. The butter, flour, eggs, and milk that go into a cake are not nuisances to be tolerated. They are inseparable companions for the sugar and are to be celebrated. The other ingredients of marriage allow us to lovingly say to our wife, You are the only person I do this with. You are the only person I say these things to. You are the only person I trust myself to. You are the only person I will support through thick and thin. When you fall, I will catch you. You are safe with me. God created sex as a potent experience meant to cement a relationship and provide experiences and pleasure you only share with your spouse. Marriage was created to be the space where sex shines, not fades into oblivion. Proverbs 5, 18-19 reminds us we are meant to enjoy the potency of sex long past our youth. Quote, May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Unquote. This verse gives further proof that sex and attraction are not about body parts, even though it is talking about body parts. The scripture here celebrates the, quote, sugar of a marriage, pointing out that God created women's breasts to be attractive to men. 
But notice that it isn't being done in a way that objectifies. It is not taking the youthful, cultural ideal of the breasts you see in porn and telling you to enjoy that part of your wife. When it says, quote, may her breasts satisfy you always, unquote, it is saying the breasts you see on your honeymoon night are not going to look the same as the breasts you see 20 or 30 years later. And yet, may they still bring you satisfaction and hold you captive to your wife's love. This is so beautiful. It's not about the size or shape of the breast, as Satan would have you believe. It's about the woman. It's about love and dignity and the whole person. It's about the intimacy that breasts are a gateway to. Breasts and body parts and sex are a beautiful, God-ordained ingredient in the overall recipe of marriage, but lose their substance when they are taken out and consumed as a side dish. How do you get more and better sex in your marriage? Books like Sheet Music by Dr. Kevin Lehman are helpful. Footnote. Lehman, Kevin, Dr. Sheet Music, Tyndale House Publishers, 2003-2008. I highly recommend this book for Christian instruction on the mechanics of sex. But be aware, it is also full of the, quote, kickback love. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine approach I've previously written about. End of footnote. Both for you and your wife. Just be careful to not let, quote, more and better, unquote, be your motivation, lest you fall back into the traps of entitlement and consumption. But by all means, see what help you can find from these tools. See all of your marriage as an act of worship. God created sex. God created marriage. God sovereignly brought you and your wife together. Footnote. If your wife is holding out on you and it's leading you to sin, go back and reread chapters 2 and 3. Thank God for using this lack of sex to sanctify you and draw you closer to him. End of footnote. Trust him. Be faithful. Pray unceasingly for God's approval to fill you up and be your power source. Remind yourself of God's voice over and over again. Quote, You are my son, whom I love, and in whom I am well pleased. Unquote. Pray unceasingly for your wife. Pray unceasingly for your marriage. Tend to the orchard and stick to the recipe book. Listen to the advice of the wise old man in Proverbs 5. When you look back on your life as an old man yourself, you won't regret it. Beyond the Surface The purpose of this chapter was to help you see how God's design for sex brings incredible benefits. Benefits that, if put on a scale, would certainly outweigh the benefits of Satan's design for sex. Proverbs 5-7 through testify to this powerfully. But often we only look at the surface level of Satan's design for sex and the surface level of God's, and we end up fighting the battle for purity with the deck stacked heavily against us. In this chapter, we try to zoom out to view God's design for sex and see how lust and extramarital sex are destined to fail. 
regardless of how they make us feel in the moment. This chapter was also meant to remind us that God is in control, and he knows what he's doing, even if it doesn't always feel like it.